study of the Psalms over the summer months brings us this morning to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, and this is a unique psalm in the sense of its structure. So as we work through, we're going to see in verses 1 and 2, David proclaiming or confessing the blessedness of the one whose sins have been forgiven. And then as we move on through the psalm, verses 3 to 11, he doesn't move on from there and progress. It seems as though he goes back and explains what happened in his life, the steps that were taken in order for him to be able to say what he said in verses 1 and 2. And so that's the structure that I'm going to use this morning as we look at the psalm. First, this idea of blessing, the blessedness of having sin forgiven and then seeing the process or the progression of David's experience here. Now, I included this outline on the back of your worship folder in your bulletin so that you can follow along. And I hope that this isn't just kind of a, a tool that you use this morning, but I put it in there specifically so we might be helped in our understanding of what is our responsibility here. What do we do? How do we apply this psalm to our life and living? Because every one of us, this is a, I can't guarantee many things, but I can guarantee this. Every one of us is in need of forgiveness. Every one of us. Because we sin. And so we need to know what has God done, one and two, and what does God require of us? So that's the structure of the psalm. That's how we're working through this this morning. And I want you to understand, this is why I titled the sermon the way I did, that the, the blessing of forgiveness does not come through ignorance or covering up your sin or acting like it isn't a big problem. The blessing of forgiveness comes through confession. And that's what David is going to example for us in this psalm. And then we're going to make some New Testament connections to see how the apostles interpreted this. And I pray that this is a blessing for us. So if you haven't done so, would you open your Bibles to Psalm 32? If you don't have a Bible with you, we have them available in the lobby. You're welcome to take one. We want the Word of God to be central in your life. And so if you need a Bible, talk to one of the elders, talk to me after the service. We would love to get a copy of the Word of God into your hands. So open to Psalm 32 and follow along as I read the Word of the Lord. A Psalm of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. 
Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father in heaven, we need your help now. We need your help in understanding your word. I need your help in preaching your word rightly. And so we ask that by your spirit and through your word, would you come and do the kind of work that we are unable to do ourselves. And would you open our understanding so that we leave here today not just with a little bit more understanding or knowledge. We, we need that. But more than that, God, we need to be changed. We need our hearts to be conformed more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We want to love you to serve you with our whole heart, but it is not something that we're able to do on our own. So Father, we, we freely confess that we need you. But in that confession, we also have hope and confidence because your word has promised that you will come and help us. So Lord, this time is yours, and I ask that you would do with it as you see fit in the preaching and in the listening, may Jesus Christ be praised. And it's in his name that I pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so the first thing we're gonna see here, the first two verses of this psalm is the blessing of forgiveness. The blessing of forgiveness. Now, when we think of the word forgiveness, we might think the, the canceling of a debt or uh, you know, having things set right, and that's true, but David uses a different word here to express the idea of something being taken away or something being lifted away. So he says, blessed is the one, you see this here in the first verse, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. So blessed is the word happy. Happy is the one, content is the one whose sins have been borne away, lifted, carried away. This is a significant word to use here, as we're going to see as we go through the chapter. And the significance of this can be seen if we actually go another place in Scripture. So you don't have to turn here. I'm just going to mention a quick verse. In Isaiah 53, the same word here is used twice, referring to what Jesus will do as the suffering servant when he comes as the Messiah. Same word, but it's not translated forgive there in Isaiah 53. It's translated another way. So see if you can pick out what the word is. Isaiah 53, 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. What's the word there? It's borne, taken away, carried away. Jesus has forgiven, borne away the sins of his people. Or verse 12, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. Same word as forgiven here in Psalm 32. So you can see when David rejoices because his sin has been forgiven, this is not just, well, it's been temporarily removed and I'm going to have to probably deal with it at some point in the future. It's not a hopeful optimism only. He is rejoicing in the fact that his sin has been removed, borne away, carried away. We're going to see what Christ does with this when we come to the end of this section and look at 1 Peter. But for now, understand the blessedness that David is talking about is not partial and it is not temporary. 
The blessing of the forgiveness of God is complete. And we see this even in some of the other words that David uses in these first two verses. He says, he uses the word covered to refer what happens to sin. Covered or hidden would be another good translation, right? So this means that God has taken the sin and put it out of sight. It's, it's dealt with. It's done away with. He will not continually bring up the sin before David and hold it in his face and say, Ha! Look what you did! He has put it away. Not only has he removed it, but in the mind of God, it is gone as far as being held against David. The same idea is found in Psalm 103. There he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgression, meaning it's not in front of him anymore. It has been hidden. It has been covered. Now, David borrows language here in verse 2 from Genesis 15. And he uses this word, counts. Okay, read verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now that's the New Testament word reckon, to hold against. So he is saying, blessed, happy is the man who the Lord does not hold his sin against him. This is the same language that Moses used when he's describing what happens to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Paul is going to pick this up in Romans chapter 4, and he is going to use not only Abraham and the reckoning of righteousness, but he is going to use David's words here in Psalm 32 as he articulates the doctrine of justification by faith. We're going to look at that before we're done here this morning. Now, the last line of verse 2, if you follow along, David says, blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. Well, what, how does that fit in with the forgiveness of sin? Is David just saying, it's a good thing if, you, if you're not a liar, if, you don't, if you're not deceitful about things? Well, that's true, right? That's, that's not something we want to be. But what does that have to do with the forgiveness of sin and, and the blessing of God removing your sin and, and covering your sin and not counting it against you. What's with the deceit here? Well, given the context of what he's spoken about, and we know where he's going here in the next few verses, I agree Jim Hamilton says this is really good. He says, it seems that the deceit in view in verse 2 is, catch this, an outward display of righteousness that conceals unconfessed sin. An outward display of like, okay, everything's fine, you're gonna put on your brave face and just act like everything's fine when inside there is this turmoil of sin. That is lying to yourself and that is lying to God. And that is the kind of deceit that David has in mind here. He says, blessed is the one who does not do this, who does not act like everything is fine and there's nothing going on. The one who says, oh, I'm, I'm good, I'm good with God and everything looks fine on the outside, but inside there is unconfessed sin. David said, blessed is the one who does not do that, who there is no deceit in him. The deceit is David's lying to God. But he says, happy is the man who learns from the advice that I'm going to give you and does not conceal your own sin or act like everything is fine. And notice, in these first two verses, the source of happiness, the source of this blessedness is not in David. 
It's not in his ability to do anything. It is in the work of God. God is the only one who can forgive sin. You know that? Remember in uh, the Gospels when the Pharisees get really mad at Jesus because he healed someone. Actually, before he healed him, he said, go, your sins are forgiven. <gasps> and everyone gets all worked up because they say, only God can forgive sin. And they were right. They were right. Only God can forgive sin. They just didn't acknowledge that Jesus was God. So when David says, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, we should understand that he is not talking about some contribution that he has made or some work that he has done. He is the recipient of the grace and the forgiveness of God. And that is the focus of this passage. The blessedness that he is speaking of is the fact that there is nothing now between him and God, that the sin that condemned him and the sin that cursed him has been removed, and this is the work of God. Therefore, he says, blessed is the one, happy is the one whose sins are forgiven. And as we talk about blessing in our day, in our context, we must remember that the highest form of blessing from God is not found in material things. It is not found in circumstantial things. The highest and greatest blessing of God is found in the restoration of the relationship with him through the forgiveness of our sins. That is it. You want to know what it is to be blessed? It's to be the one who can say what David says in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. What a blessing. Now, David has expressed this joy in the forgiveness of sins, and now let's follow him as he recounts the process, as he talks about what he went through to get where he is, to get to the place where he can say, this is the best, this is what I want. The blessed man is the one whose transgressions are taken care of. How does he get to that place? And I think that's what he tells us now in the rest of the chapter. You can follow along. Like I said, I put the, the verse divisions on the back. And because I'm a Baptist, all of them start with the letter C. I did that just to annoy some of you. So let's follow this process through. First thing we're going to see in verse 3 is that it starts with covering. And I don't mean this in a good way. This is a negative kind of covering. So read verse 3 with me. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. So by keeping silent, David is doing the deceit that he just talked about. He's keeping it quiet. He's covering it. He's acting like, yeah, there's really nothing going on here. Now notice there's two kinds of covering in this chapter, isn't there? The first kind, David just talked about in verse two, when God covers a thing, it's covered. And there is no reversing that. That is effectual and right covering. But when David tries to cover his own sin, when he tries to kind of you ever, and, and we got hunters in here. Sometimes you cover your tracks so you don't want to be followed or seen. Okay, David's trying to cover up where he's been. He's trying to, to kind of hide what's been going on with the Lord. But this is not the pathway to forgiveness. This is not the pathway to any kind of release or freedom for David. In this covering, he is lying to himself and he is lying to God. And... As a result of this, he is experiencing in his body the effect of this kind of deceit. 
by keeping silent and hiding these things from God, he is trying to cover his sin. And that's why he says he's wasting away. It's, it's eating him up from the inside. He said something similar last chapter in Psalm 31. He said, my strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. This same thing that's happening in 32. He is experiencing the physical consequences of keeping everything bottled up inside. And if you've ever been even in a close situation to this, where you know you have sinned, you know and you have done something that is needing to be brought to the light, but you don't want to confess it, and you keep it bottled up inside, it can affect every part of your life. The guilt of your conscience and the, the, the fatigue of trying to keep up the facade when you know there is something inside that needs to be dealt with. That's what David's experiencing. This covering of his sin is tremendously ineffective. And as we move on through the chapter, we see that this kind of physical suffering, this, this turmoil that he's experiencing is not for nothing. The hand of the Lord brought about conviction next. Look at verse four. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. Now the hand of the Lord, the, the heavy hand of the Lord that David felt upon him is what we know to be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The conviction of the Holy Spirit that comes through many different forms. It might not be that you get physically ill when you come under conviction. It might be that it comes through your time in the Word and the Word convicts you. It might be through a spouse or a close friend or a pastor in the church that brings conviction to your life. It can come in various ways, but we need to understand that God uses all of these different things to bring about what He desires for us, and that is the conviction that pro promotes and precipitates repentance. So David tries to cover his sin, but he can't. And in that uncomfortable, painful experience, it brings about conviction of sin. And it seems like this physical weariness, this physical wearing out that David experiences are the tools that God uses to bring about conviction and to remind David of the futility of trying to deal with sin on your own. Remember I just said a minute ago that God is the only one who can forgive sin to deal with sin? It's futile. In other words, meaningless, pointless for us to try to atone for ourselves, to try to deal with our own sin in our own power. It will never work. It will exhaust you. It will grind you down to nothing, but it is not effectual. We must come to the place where conviction of sin turns to confession of sin. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see, confession is an absolutely necessary part of this whole process. It is not enough just to say, well, I, I think I might have done something wrong, and yeah, I admit I, I may have screwed up, and leave it at that. That's no confession. Admission is not confession. You guys know this, right? When it comes to this dealing with sin, confession is absolutely necessary. We should not be content to just acknowledge that we may or may not have done something that was wrong. 
We must be brought to the point by the conviction of the Holy Spirit where we say, I I was wrong, I confess, I ask for forgiveness. And not only to God, God is absolutely primary, but also to the people that we have sinned against. Confession should not be limited to a private, internal thing if it is sin that has been done to other people. And notice, when David confesses his sin, we see this really clearly in verse 5, what is the effect? What does that confession bring about? The second half of verse 5. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is one of the texts that I think the Apostle John has in mind as he's writing his letters to the churches. And we use 1 John 1, 9 quite often when we come to the table here. But I'm going to read 1 John 1, 8 and 9. And I want you to listen for similar language. So David's talking about the confession of sin, not hiding his sin, coming under conviction, bringing that to the Lord, all those things. Okay, so hear that and listen to 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So do you see what's going on there? Do you see how that mirrors what David is saying in Psalm 32? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's the kind of deceit that David was talking about in verse 2. The the covering, the acting like everything's fine when really there's this internal sense of turmoil going on because of your sin. But if we confess like he does in verse 5, God is faithful. And that is the confidence that you can have as a child of God, that when you confess your sin to God, he'll forgive you. And you can say what David says in verses 1 and 2. But without confession, it doesn't work. David covers his sin. He comes under conviction by the Holy Spirit. He confesses his sin. And at this point in the progression, I think David is saying, okay, I don't want other people to go through this. I don't want them to experience this heavy conviction and this internal and even physical turmoil. I want to instruct other people. I want to offer some correction so that they can stay away from the situation that I've been in. So this is our fourth point here. It moves from confession to correction. Look at verse 8 with me. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, there's a little bit of debate among the commentators as to who's talking here. Sometimes it does this in the Psalms. It switches. First person, second person switches from God talking to the author talking. And I don't think this should be a huge issue for us. Whether this is God directly from his mouth or through David, it's in the scriptures. And we affirm that all of the scriptures are true and helpful and for our good. So don't get too hung up on the change of pronouns here as it goes through. David uses, in this corrective instruction, the example of a horse, and not a good example. I know some of you like horses, but we're going to pick on them here just for a little bit. He says, don't be like a horse or a mule. So what is it? What does he mean? What is it about a horse that is a bad example of what he's talking about here in this context? Well, a horse 
in general. I know someone might say, oh, you haven't met my horse. It's really smart. It's really well-trained. I'll meet your horse some other time. For now, we're dealing with this. A horse does not willingly obey. And he, he tells us this by saying, you got to put a bit and a bridle in that massive animal to make it do what you want to do. It is not the delight of the horse to do whatever the rider wants. It wants to do its own thing. And so it must be constrained by external means to bend the will of the horse to the will of the rider. And David is saying, when it comes to conviction, confession, don't be like that. Don't wait until a bit has to be shoved into your mouth and you are dragged, kicking and digging your heels in to a place of repentance and confession. Don't do that. Don't be like the horse. Rather, we ought to willingly, freely, the moment that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, confess that to the Father. It's one of the reasons that we come to the Lord's table every Sunday here at Grace. There's nothing magical that's happening here, but it is providing us an opportunity corporately to consider your life, your week, your morning, and to bring those sins to the Lord. It is facilitating an opportunity for you to not be a horse, but to be one who willingly confesses sin to the Lord, knowing with confidence that if you belong to him, God will hear you. And God will forgive the iniquity of your sin. So I echo David's words. Don't wait. Do not wait until something happens in your life where you are forced to the place where you are on your knees confessing before God. Do it now. Bring your sin to the cross and trust that the blood of Christ will cover those sins. So David tries to cover it comes under conviction, confesses, he offers correction, and now the last thing in this progression is celebration. Good verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now here we come full circle. Okay, the, the happiness, the blessedness of the man in the first two verses that was forgiven of sin and iniquity was not held against him is the one who rejoices, the one who is glad in the Lord. I hope you've experienced what David is experiencing here. I know I have. That when you confess your sin, the relief that comes... The, the, the lift, and sometimes it literally feels like a weight lifted off of you when you confess your sin, bring it to the Lord, and lay it down at the foot of the cross. Anyone ever read Pilgrim's Progress? We got any John Bunyan fans? One, great. Two, good, I see that hand. In Pilgrim's Progress, do you remember when Faithless is converted and becomes Christian? Do you remember what happens? He's carrying this heavy burden, Okay. And he's, he's led on the path to the foot of the cross. And he has been unable, on his own, to, to shake that off his back, to get rid of that burden. But he comes to the cross. And through repentance and confession, he is freed. That burden is cut off of him. And he leaps for joy. He does what David is describing in verse 11. He rejoices in the Lord and shouts for joy 
at the lifting of that burden, at the forgiveness of his sin. Now, that's a story. That's an illustration. But that is what this is talking about. The celebration, the gladness that David experiences as a result of that sin that he had been carrying, that turmoil that he had experienced being removed from him, being forgiven and taken away. And as a result of that, he says, thank you, God. It's what motivates him to celebrate the goodness of God. I mean, these are the kinds of texts that motivate Henry Light to write songs like Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. To his feet my tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, evermore his praise to sing. That is what this text is about. The restoration and salvation of a sinner should produce in our hearts rejoicing. It's no accident that we come together for church and sing with our mouth. We rejoice with our voice because of what God has done. And praise God for a leader like Josh who takes us to the word of God so that our worship is response, not just some out of the blue singing. Our hearts ought to be on fire with affection for God because of what he has done. So when we gather together for worship, this is no small thing. This is no light thing. This is weighty because we are encountering the living God through his word and we can do what David says. Rejoice in the Lord, O oh, you righteous, and be glad, you upright in heart. Now that's the psalm. And we've walked through and seen what was going on exegetically. We've, we've seen what the text is telling us. What I want to do now as we close is show us what's happening theologically in this text. Now, that's a big word. It's just the combination of two words, theos meaning God, ology, the study of, the discipline science. Theology is the study of God. So theologically, what's happening here in Psalm 32, specifically in the first two verses? What's happening here is that the unfolding of God's plan, the unfolding of his purposes and his will and his intentions for redemptive history happen in something we call progressive revelation. What I mean is that as the history of redemption unfolds, we start, we read in the Bible, of course, before the foundation of the world, that's where it initiates, but then at Eden, and on through the history of God's people, right up until the present, the redemptive plan of God is unfolding. We see things more and more clearly as his redemption progresses. So that's what progressive revelation means. So here's an example. Moses understood things about God and his character that Adam would not have been able to articulate doesn't mean the reality wasn't there, but he didn't have what Moses had. Jump again. David understood things about God, his care, his mercy, that Moses maybe knew but couldn't articulate in the same way. And when we come to the New Testament, we see Jesus and the apostles explicitly teaching doctrines like the Trinity, like justification and adoption and uh, all kinds of other things that were present the whole time, but they were not made clear 
until later times in redemptive history. Now, here's why I go through the effort of telling you that. I think that's what we're seeing in verses 1 and 2. We are getting a snapshot to a doctrine that is not yet fully developed in Psalm 32, but will be when we come to the New Testament. So let's say someone in the New Testament were to read this psalm. How do you think they would interpret and apply it? Well, we don't have to guess because someone in the New Testament did read this psalm and they did interpret and apply it and recorded it for us. And I'm talking about Paul and in Romans chapter 4, Paul uses this text, Psalm 32, 1 and 2 and Genesis 15 in his defense of justification by faith. He's in this whole section talking about how a person is made right with God and he uses this text as the foundational grounding text. You see, God did not justify people by works in the Old Testament and then suddenly come to the New Testament and say, oh, we're going to do it by faith now. It has always been by faith. Trusting in what God has said. Only as the progressive revelation unfolds, we see more and more clearly what is going on. It would be a massive mistake to look at your Bible and say, okay, this is a section and God acts a certain way here. Now here's another section and God is totally different here. False. God doesn't change. He has always justified his people by faith. And Paul picks up on this and makes it clear for us. So I want you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 4. Turn your Bible to Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read the first few verses because I want you to see what I saw about the use of this psalm. So Romans chapter 4, you go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you go through Acts and you'll hit Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 4 and follow along starting in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Now here he goes back to Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Same phrase that we saw in the beginning of Psalm 32. Verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And now he quotes in verses 7 and 8 the first two verses of Psalm 32. So do you see what he's doing? Paul is making an argument for justification by faith apart from works and he cites verbatim verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32. Well, David never said back here, okay, this is justification apart from works of the law, right? That's not here. He doesn't contrast faith and works, but it is the same doctrine, maybe in seed form, but it is the same doctrine as we know from the New Testament as justification by faith. And because of progressive revelation, we can understand more and more of this. Do you see, what, do you see why this is so important? I want you, I mean, this, this is a pastoral desire for you. I want you to see the connectedness, the unity, 
the complete harmony of the Old and New Testaments. There is nothing taught in the New Testament that is not present in the Old. Maybe it's in seed form. Maybe it's not fully developed because the progression of history had not gotten there yet in God's providence. But everything that we read about in the New Testament is present in the Old. This is the nature of progressive revelation. And I want you to see this because it is so important that when we are discussing, when we are defending, when we are articulating different theological or doctrinal things, we don't have to be limited to the New Testament. We can go to the Old Testament and see these things and see how God has unfolded his purpose and his will for his people. And what a blessing to know that when David says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered, he's not talking about a radically different thing than justification by faith, which is what you and I know. So praise God for the unity of the Old and the New Testament. And praise God for people like Paul who go back and read the Old Testament and give us tools to understand what's going on. So let's put this all together now as we're coming to a close. I've said a lot of things and hopefully you're tracking with me. But I want to ask, how should we summarize what we're seeing in this psalm? What is the blessing that David is speaking about in verses 1 and 2? What is that blessing? Paul is saying that blessing is justification by faith apart from works of the law. That's it. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And I want you to see that not as something you have to work for, but as a gift of God's grace. This is why we sang only by grace alone. What about the end? What about the last verse? What, what should be our response to this act of God's grace in removing the transgressions of his people? It's the same thing we see in verse 11. Be glad and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The reason that we rejoice in the Lord is because it's his work. And we give credit and glory and honor to him because he is worthy of it. There is no room here for us to say, but, 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 but look what I did, look what I did. I confessed, I repented, because God gave you the ability to do that by his Holy Spirit. There is no room for you or me in this text. It is all the work of God who enables us to be able to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and confess our sins, to help able to be instructing to others to keep them from this and to celebrate the good work that God had done. Now we're going to close, and I want you to remember, I said at the beginning that this word forgiveness means carried away, right? Taken away. So for you and I, what's the application of that? 1 Peter 2, 24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we, that is those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. How can we say what David said in Psalm 32? By trusting in Jesus, that on the cross, he forgave, he bore, he carried away your sin. I pray that you know that blessing this morning. It is the only path to forgiveness and joy and peace. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you now for the cross of Jesus Christ where the ultimate sacrifice for sin was made, the thing that makes possible what David was talking about in Psalm 32 happened on the cross where Jesus Christ, your son, took upon himself the sins of his people and bore them away. Thank you that the forgiveness of sins that we experience because of Christ is complete, that you do not tell us, I'll forgive 90% of your sin and you have to deal with the other 10, but you so completely and totally have paid for sin through the sacrifice of Jesus that all we must do is confess our sin and receive the free gift of forgiveness and salvation and righteousness from you. And so God, for all of us in this room, whether we have walked with you for decades or whether we have not yet come under the conviction of the Spirit and repented of our sin and turned to you, would all of us recognize that it is only by grace and faith in Jesus Christ that we can say we are blessed because our sins have been forgiven. So God, if there are those in this room now who have not laid down the burden of their sin, who are still carrying around this internal struggle and sickness, by your Spirit, cut the cords of that burden. Help them to lay it down and receive forgiveness. It's available to all who will call upon you. So Father, do it. Do it in this room right now. And may you receive the honor. May we rejoice in you because of this work. And I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's not really much more we can 